0: Our New Testament reading is Ephesians six ten to 24. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with the truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all the perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. But that you also may know about my circumstances, how I am doing. Tychus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us, and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love, amen.
1: Thank you so much, Aliyah, for reading so clearly for us. So let's keep that passage open. We complete our sermon series from Ephesians today, but let's pray for God's help then as we uh, sit together now. Gracious God our Heavenly Father we praise you for the immense privilege it is to gather as your people today and to hear your word to us. We praise you that you are a speaking God. Our prayer that we might be today a listening people. Fill us with your spirits and help us to walk worthy of Christ and to learn his word and to take it to heart today because we ask it for his namesake and his glory. Amen. Well, since January the 1st, 1994, to December 2021, there have been 1,040 terrorist attacks and plots in the United States. That's an average of 35 a year. It means that the threat level is high, that there is a clear and present danger stateside which is why the FBI and the CIA and other security agencies remain on high alerts to foil the plots. They tell us it's not a question of if, but of when. And this morning, Paul is raising the spiritual threat level faced by the Christian church. He's wanting to warn us in the most serious terms that we are at DEFCON 1. For this morning, as he pulls back the curtain behind what is going on here at church and in the home, in the spiritual dimension, in the universe behind us, is cosmic evil and a war that is raging, designed to capture and to kill Christians like us. This morning, then, in Ephesians 6, as we complete our sermon series, it's as if Paul is operating like a defense chief of staff at the Pentagon. His point is that there is a clear and present danger. There is a mortal threat from a deadly and determined enemy. And the clarion call comes in verse 10 as Paul commands us to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Finally, he says, be strong. That word finally is actually the key summary word of all that Paul has taught us from the whole letter. Given that all that God has done in choosing us and redeeming us and saving us and forgiving us and adopting us and uniting us and sealing us and filling us, now be strong. The command comes in what is called the present imperative. That means it's not something that we are to do from time to time, or once and for all, but rather this is something we're going to have to do again and again and never stop. The word strong that Paul uses is the word from which we get the word dynamo or dynamic or dynamites. And this dynamic strength that we need is not something that we can muster from internal resources as we sort of put a new spiritual battery inside us. It comes, says Paul, from God's. And to underline that, twice Paul's, Paul underlines it. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his strength. The word that Paul uses here for strength is the Greek word kratos. And in Greek mythology, kratos was the God of strength. We are being commanded this morning to be strong in the mighty might of God, in the forceful force of Christ, in the unstoppable power of the God who created the world and who raised Jesus from the dead. All the way through the Bible, the story is how the weak people of God are faced with overwhelming threats But nevertheless, they triumph because of the mighty might of God and the forceful force of their Redeemer. Think of what happened at the Red Sea as the people of God were caught in the pocket, much like Dunkirk. There was no way to escape. Only that, the forceful force of God, opened the waters, drowning the Egyptians and saving the people of God. Think of David versus Goliath. What were the odds if you'd gone down to the betting shop? Unbelievably overwhelming. Only that with the forceful force of God, the mighty Goliath is defeated by the weak-looking David or the collapse of Jericho. But our strength derives from the mightiest of all the victories for at the cross of Jesus Christ, in that moment of seeming defeat as Jesus dies, As there it seems, Satan wins. Nevertheless, death is swallowed up in victory as on that first Easter Sunday, Jesus bursts out of the empty tomb, triumphing over death and shame and Satan forever. This call to be strong then is not a call to defeat Satan. Rather, it is a call to remain strong standing in the victory which has already been secured. Paul is saying we are to dig in and with the Spirit's help, hold on to the victorious Jesus with a vice-like grip. At the heart of the advice in the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous is to rely on a higher power. The point is, without it, We will remain defeated in alcoholism. But the higher power we are to rely on as Christians is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, kratos, the unstoppable force of Jesus Christ. And there'll be a number of us here this morning who have spent the last week in depression and in defeat. We go around with faces like a morgue, Faces like a funeral, feeling so depressed and defeated in the Christian life. Paul is calling upon you to repent of it, to embrace the power, to anticipate the victory. There is to be no more armistice with sin, no more white flag surrenders. For the source of our power is the mighty victory of Jesus which is why the great work of the devil is to move us away from Jesus. If the place of victory is in the gospel of Jesus, then the great work of Satan is to move us away from the gospel of Jesus, from security to weakness, from victory into compromise. So this morning we are to consider three separate things. First, our adversary, then our armor, and last, our assurance. But Paul wants us to understand the enemy that faces us, threat, level, critical. Verse 11, Paul says, put on the full armor of God that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Here in chapter 6, then, he is pulling back the curtain to the real and powerful spiritual realities at work, invisible to us in the cosmos right now. Verse 12, we are struggling, not against people and flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the powers and the forces of darkness in this world. Satan, we learn from the Old Testament, is a, a fallen angel of some kinds. And John Milton takes this up in his epic, Paradise Lost, that I had to study at school. Satan, in this great epic poem, is hurled down from the privileges of heaven into the agonies of hell. And in that awful, agonizing poem, Paradise Lost, I think, book one, he declares, in the most ominous terms, better to rule in hell than serve in heaven. His reach is not contained or localized. It isn't just a little pocket or a flank over here. Rather, his influence pervades the whole of the cosmos. This is a serious threat. And every single one of the nine writers of the New Testament mention him. And what is so shocking for us this morning is that Paul, in writing this, is not addressing a Satanist society He's writing it to the local church. The warning is not for people out there into Ouija boards and demonic occult, but to Christians in a local church. For the devil will always be at work in the home and always at work in the church. He's here right now, sitting amongst us, watching, waiting, and listening. In chapter 5, verse 15, the call was to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received. And last week, we were in home sweet home as the husband led the wife and as the wife submitted to the husbands. As the parents taught their children, as the children obeyed their parents. The week before, we were in church as we sung together in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs in unity into the likeness of Christ. But why is it so hard at home And why is it so hard in the local church? As Paul pulls back the curtain behind us, we see it at last. For whether we like it or not, want it or not, wish for it or not, accept it or not, if you are a Christian, then you are on the battlefield right now because the Christian life is warfare. And the whole of your life from the moment, the nanosecond of conversion to the nanosecond of death is caught up in this titanic, cosmic, spiritual conflict. The picture that Paul has for us then is a military picture. It's as if the air raid siren is sounding. We are to stand firm. A word repeated in verse 11, 13 and 14 just as the Roman infantry battalion stood firm under attack with spikes in their sandals designed to make them immovable as they dug in against a long, hard, relentless campaign, so must we. It begins the moment we are converted. It will end not sooner than the day we die as the tracer bullets of spiritual attack fire around us. And in verse 12, Paul uses the word struggle. It's a word actually borrowed from the gladiatorial arena in the Colosseum. This is not a distant war out in the Ukraine. It's not a war game on a computer. This is deadly serious. It demands a determined resolve. For Satan is determined to capture and kill you and to destroy our church. Let's then, says Paul, look at his nature as Paul, our intelligence officer, hands us the profile of this enemy. We'll see his nature, his power, then his guile. His nature, Paul says, evil. The word literally means malignant or malign. He's like a cancerous tumor seeking to infect and spread, and to destroy health with disease. His power, he rules, says Paul, over the principalities and powers. The picture here is of different battalions in hell. And over all of this, the devil, as prince of this world, rules like a fiefdom with global reach. He's the ruler of our present age. But what is his power? The word devil just means deceiver. The word Satan means accuser. And the key is in the name. Because the only power of Satan is in his lies. The great lie of Genesis 3. Did God really say The great lie of Genesis 3, life would be better without God's. The great lie of Genesis 3, that if you disobey God, you won't die, but can flourish and live forever. You will not surely die. It is as we believe the lie that we are captured and destroyed. The only power of Satan is in his lies. But they are destructive, And so a range of metaphors are used in the New Testament of this enemy, a rapacious dragon, a poisonous snake, a savage wolf, a roaring lion, the prince of darkness. And the power that Satan has over our world is a power given to him by God. If we in rebellion say no to God and his word, God in judgment hands us, over to the power of Satan so that we will believe his lies. And therefore, the call of the New Testament, having been rescued from the lie by the truth of the gospel, is not to be lured back from truth to deception. So Peter writes, be sober. Wake up, for your adversary, the devil, prowls around the local church, looking like a roaring lion for someone to devour. But it's a dirty war, a never-ending war of propaganda and deception against the people of gods. John Stott puts it like this of the demonic battalions. They have no moral principles, no code of honor, no higher feelings. They recognize no Geneva Convention or restrict or partly civilize the weapons of their warfare. They are utterly unscrupulous and ruthless in their pursuit of their malicious designs. And Martin Luther knew this, for in the words of our final hymn that we're about to sing, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. Powerful, evil, and verse 11, cunning. We are to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And in the Greek, that word schemes literally translates stratagems. He is an expert tactician, he is a skilled operator, he is a spiritual Machiavellian, always working secretly from within. You'll have heard the phrase a fifth column, it refers to a secret group unknown to a nation or an organization, it's the enemy within, domestic actors working inside to overthrow the organization they belong to through a covert, clandestine war of sabotage, disinformation, and espionage. The term was actually first used in the Spanish uh, Civil War. When the uh, General Franco was advancing on Madrid, he had four columns and was asked, how on earth do you expect to win Madrid? His answer was instant through my fifth column, working to undermine the enemy from the inside. Satan is a master of guile, and his main strategy is to maintain his invisibility. He operates in camouflage, always preparing to ambush the unwitting. Rather like the children catcher from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, he entices through the lollipops of sin, only to then entrap in the cage of captivity into the eternal castle dungeon of guilt, death, and judgment. And ever since the beginning, Satan has been operating, bent on destruction, on the destruction of the church. As Jesus builds his church, the gates of hell rage. But in our post-Enlightenment rationalistic culture, no one actually believes this. And in most churches, talk of the devil is dismissed as the domain of lunatics and cranks. And so the devil is not so much a threat, but a figure of fun. He doesn't really belong in the horror section, but in comedy, with his tail and horns and red stockings and tights reserved for Halloween. The modern church in America, here in the West, has all but forgotten the devil, so there is no need for vigilance. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it like this, I am certain that one of the main causes of the ill state of the church today is that the devil has been forgotten. Well, how do you picture him, this enemy? I want you to picture his cold, hard, steely eyes, his iron determination, his relentless resolve, always waiting, always watching, a cunning tactician, always present, always plotting, always ready to capture the simple, unwitting, blind, foolish Christian on a capture and a kill mission. The point is that he's invisible to the naked eye. He doesn't turn up at the house and ring the doorbell. He'll enter in through the open bathroom window at the back of the house. He'll slip in, unaware that the rest of us are here. He won't necessarily tell us of his presence. There will be no noise or footprints, but his fingerprints will be present. And the point here in Ephesians 6 is that this is not an individual picture of Satan attacking me personally, though that is obviously true. Here in Ephesians 6 verses 10 to 20, the picture is of Satan attacking the church as a whole. It's a corporate picture. Around the US next year, around 7,000 to 10,000 churches will close their door for the last time. It's an incredible statistic. The churches have died. So the question is, how does the enemy get into a church to capture and to kill it? How would you? I've got five suggestions. Here's the first. First, isn't it as he infiltrates the church with the spirit of the age, entering through the back door and then introducing the zeitgeist into the culture of our church? so that it becomes quietly part of the wallpaper around us. As we hear the word of God, but actually in our culture, drift into a godless and alternative culture through the revolutionary lexicon of equality and diversity and tolerance and inclusion, or as we open the door to allow in complainant culture and victimology, which is part of the woke godlessness around us. Second, could it be as a church allows the gospel of repentance and obedience to be recast within the new frame of what I want to call satisfactionalism? This is a radical individualism in which customer is king and in which my needs must be met. So the church ceases to be a place of correction and instruction and truth, more a drive-through or a hospital or a health spa. And of course, satisfactionalism must bring with it the ugly anti-authoritarianism that refuses to be corrected and governed and taught because my emotional and spiritual needs must be met or I become angry. In fact, C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, pictures precisely this, as in that extraordinary book, the senior devil is training the young devil in how to lure a Christian from the truth of the gospel. Turn them back, says the uh, devil, to consumerism, to the demand that the gospel should not be preached, but rather that my needs should be met. And he writes this, Surely, if a man can't be cured of church-going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for a church that suits him until he becomes a taster or a connoisseur of churches. The search, he says, for a suitable church will make the man a critic, whereas the enemy, that's God's, Demands that he should become a pupil. Or third, could it be that Satan sneaks into a church through a compromised pragmatism? So we pivot from doing what is right according to the word of God to politically what works best for us given who we are In his classic book, Taking Heaven by Storm, the Puritan writer, Thomas Watson, thinks so. He writes this. Another subtlety is to draw men into evil under the pretense of good. The pirate does mischief by hanging out false colors. So does Satan, by hanging out the colors of religion. He entices men into sinful actions and persuades them much good will come of it. He tells them that in some cases they may dispense with the rule of the word and stretch their consciences beyond a line that may be in a capacity of more service to God in sin. Or is it as we tolerate small sin in our own individual lives or in our lives as a church. Back to Screwtape, where the senior devil tells the young tempter that it's best to go for the gradual drift than the spectacular sin. He writes this, indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts? Or could it be lost that the way that Satan will enter a church is through broken relationships of trust? In chapter four, verse 27, that's precisely what Paul warns about. Through anger and bitterness, slander and division, the church is toxified And it only takes a small injection of cyanide into the well for everyone who drinks from it to be killed. Paul says, don't give the devil a foothold, chapter 4, verse 27, with your anger. And yet, the reality is that so few Christians have the stomach for this. We cannot endure conflicts. We want an easy life, and in so much spirituality in the West, we're not so much soldiers on a battlefield, more spiritual sunbathers on the beach. This is why the church in the U.S. is so weak. We've given up the fight. We're living in a spiritual Switzerland, or or we're sort of spiritual Bilbo Baggins. I don't want to go on the dangerous journey and face the eye of Sauron. I actually would rather sit in my hobbit hole in the Shire, drinking beer, eating scones by my fire. Don't tell me of danger and of warfare and of trouble and of strife. Give me comforts and security now. J.C. Ryle puts it like this, True Christianity, mind that word true, let there be no mistake about it. There is a vast quantity of religion current in the world which is not true, genuine Christianity. It passes muster, it satisfies sleepy consciences, but it's not good money. It's not the real thing that's called Christianity, There are thousands of men and women who go to church and chapel every Sunday and they call themselves Christian. Their names are on the baptismal register. They're reckoned Christians while they're alive. They're married with a Christian marriage service. They're buried as Christians when they die. But you never see any fight about their religion. Of spiritual strife and exertion and conflict and self-denial and watching and warring, they literally know nothing at all. Such Christianity may satisfy man and those who say anything against it. But it is not the Christianity of the Bible. It is not the religion our Lord Jesus founded. True Christianity is a fight and a battle. I wonder if that jars for you. Actually, Ryle continues, to be a Christian is to be a soldier. This is how he must behave from the day of his conversion to the day of his death. He is not meant to live a life of religious ease and indolence and security. He must not imagine for a moment that he can sleep and doze his way to heaven, like one traveling in an easy carriage. If he takes his standard of Christianity from the children of this world, he may be content with such notions, but he will find no countenance for them in the word of God. If the Bible is the rule of faith and practice, he will find his lines, laid down very plainly, he must fight and to battle. And that's Paul's call to be strong in the might of the strength of God. Inevitably, here in Ephesians 6, we feel somewhat overwhelmed by the enemy we face, by this call to battle. And inevitably, we wonder now, can we stand against it? And it's our second point as Paul takes us to our armor. We can, he says, with the armor of God's. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist on the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, verse 14, stand firm then with the truth uh, around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place. Verse 15, having strapped to your feet the preparation of the gospel of peace. And in addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith to extinguish all of the flaming arrows of the evil one and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Well, it was in September 1938 when British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain returned from Munich. He had met with the Fuhrer to discuss peace terms. You can go and you can see it online as he walks off the plane And then he says, I have in my hand a piece of paper signed by the Fuhrer himself, peace in our time. Within months of the Fuhrer having signed the bit of paper, 1939, Poland was being invaded as the tanks rolled in for attack. And it was to take a Churchill to tell the nation the truth as he stood at a dispatch box in the House of Commons in the words of the well-known speech. Even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen, or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. We will go on to the end. We will fight in France. We will fight on the seas and oceans. We will fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We will defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We will fight on the beaches and on the landing grounds. We will fight in the fields and in the streets. We will fight in the hills and we will never surrender. And even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it is subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, will carry the struggle on until in God's good time, the new world with its power and might steps forth to the rescue for the liberation of the olds. For to be Christian means never to surrender but always to fight. Paul looks defeated as he writes this letter. He's a prisoner of Nero in Rome under house arrest. But as he looks at his sentry guard, this Roman infantryman, he sees the armor that leads him to the picture which we have here. We may feel defeated and we may feel weak, And the idea of mortal combat against these spiritual demonic intelligences and cosmic powers may terrify us. But we have the kit for the theater of conflict, put on the full armor of God. In the Old Testament, God is pictured as putting on armor for the fights. And God is pictured as being in warfare against evil. So if God is in warfare against evil and we are on God's side, we are at warfare with evil. And if in the Old Testament, as God goes into conflict with evil, he has to put armor on, so must we. In Psalm 93, God girds himself with armor against the floodwaters of evil as they rise. And in Isaiah 59, our reading earlier on from Dana, as we heard that God is putting on armor against the fight with evil. This armor is not something that we need to go on eBay or Amazon to get hold of. It's given to us, and it's effective for us, the full armor of God. And if the tactic of Satan is lies, then the armor we need is truth. If the way that Satan seeks to win individual Christians or destroy churches is through error and lies and deception, then the way in which we stand firm is with the truth of the gospel. So each of these pieces of armor is in fact the gospel. Verse 14, put on the belt of truth. Rather like a wrestling belt today, it held the tunic up to avoid tripping in the agility of warfare. The belt of truth, the truth of the gospel. Verse 15, the breastplate of righteousness As soon as we come to Jesus, we're made right in the gospel. Put on the truth that you are right in God, in the gospel, as the breastplates. Verse 15, your feet. Make sure they're fitted with the readiness of the gospel. The picture here is of agility in battle as the soldier needs firm grip and the ability to keep moving with the flexibility of warfare. That's the gospel of peace. Verse 16, take the shield of faith. The shield that Paul is talking of here wasn't a small shield. It was about five foot by 2.5 feet. It was a huge shield that actually protected the whole of the centurion or the Roman infantry from attack and they had a defensive formation called the tutella or the tortoise or turtle where under attack the infantry division would have a series of shields to the front, then to the side, then to the top, and they became an impregnable units defending and moving forward. Indeed, the picture here is actually borrowed from the opening scene of Gladiator. As these fiery darts move in against the position, it is that opening scene of Gladiator as Russell Crowe, the general of these armies of the north, uh, gives the command, unleash hell, and you see the full arsenal of these incendiary missiles, these fiery arrows raining down. These arrows were extraordinary. They were hollow in their shafts. They were dipped into a flax or a wax pitch. The oil caught uh, fire, and the air and oxygen through the shaft ensured that they rained down with flames of fire killing individuals but more seriously causing complete confusion as soldiers sought to put out the fire and then the enemies moved in for attack. Take this shield of the faith, the scutum it was called, with it you can stand firm against every incendiary missile and flaming arrow of Satan the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. For it is the gospel, which in Hebrews 4 is sharper than a two-edged sword. The picture here is of the church of Jesus standing firm with the word of the gospel, effective in defense against the attack of the devil with his lies. The lie runs around the world twice before the truth has time to put its shoes on. But as the spirit opens our minds to the truth, then we are protected from the attack of Satan. Yet, so many churches do not put their confidence in the word of God. They place their confidence on their traditions, or their church identity, or their reputation, or the past or their programs, or their pastor, or their constitution, or their building, or the status quo. But none of these can keep Satan out. The only protection from the roaring lion, the poisonous snake, the rapacious dragon, is the truth of the gospel the word of God as taught by the pastor and the pastors to the congregation who then develop gospel convictions across the life of the church. Gospel convictions as the gospel is ministered one to another as we enter into that defensive formation, the totella, the tortoise, as we together hold the shield of faith together against these incendiary uh, uh, da- arrows of the evil one. Yet, writing to this very same congregation in 2 Timothy, Paul's final letter, he writes that many will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, they will gather around them many teachers to suit their own desires, to say what their itching ears want to hear. And the battle then for churches in America today is not to teach what suits our feelings or our emotions or our comforts, or our traditions. It is to teach the gospel, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, to form the mind that we might become biblically literate in a post-literate culture, with minds of gospel conviction and hearts of gospel affection and wills of gospel determination. For why is this attack so fierce? And the answer comes in chapter 6, verse 19, where the picture here is of an energetic and bold preaching of the gospel. Paul writes, pray for me, and pray that in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests that we would be alert and keep on praying. And pray for me, verse 19, that whenever I speak the words, that they might be given to me, that I may fiercely make known the mystery of Christ for which I'm an ambassador in chains. The attack is always the most ferocious when the church is preaching the gospel. When a church is on the front line preaching the gospel, the devil will attack. The devil is happy with a sleepy church. The devil is happy with a distracted church. The devil is happy with a nostalgic church, or a worldly church, or a moralistic church, or a cozy church, or a therapeutic church, or a feel-good church, or an emotional church, or a maintenance mode church, or an unclear church. But when the church dares to develop clear gospel preaching with clear gospel conviction and clear gospel vision, implementing clear gospel training, well then expect the full arsenal of hell to descend on your position. For Satan is, 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 is terrified by nothing more than the gospel-centered church. So can we stand? And the answer is yes, as we move lastly to our assurance. For Paul says, the Christian armed... Will stand. Verse 11, verse 13, verse 14. Four times he tells us that we are able to stand. Verse 11, verse 13, able to resist, to stand. Verse 14, to stand. Call then as Christians in eternity past. Seal, then for eternity future. The great work of the Spirit is to keep us standing in the now. And as we look around, we see the weakness in our own hearts and the full extent of the threat, and it tempts us to despair. We wonder within our culture if our children can ever possibly make it. We dread to think of what it will be like for our grandchildren. But don't fear the devil. Listen to Luther again. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, We will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. The word of the gospel. For nothing terrifies Satan more than the praying Christian whose gaze is on the gospel. Nothing terrifies Satan more than a church saturated in the truth of the gospel. And that's why, in this battle that we are all in, the call of Paul is to be gospel shaped in our leadership, in our mission, in our culture. As a church. What's the application if we even begin to take this seriously? I want to suggest three things. We will be a word-centered church for the armor is not tradition or the past or nostalgia or the building or even the Constitution. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reason why God gifts his church with pastors is to teach that word so that the church is not led by the pew, but by the pulpit through the word of God. As it's taught, we're strengthened with gospel conviction and with gospel grace for the gospel fight. We will be a church of the word. Verse 18, we will be a church of prayer. For as we pray for the Spirit to strengthen us, he will do it through the word. That's why every single one of us must be at the main monthly prayer meeting if we take this seriously, to pray for our church. And last, we will be a gospel bold church. For in verse 19, the reason the church exists is to proclaim the gospel with a freedom of speech and a courage of hearts. Pray, says Paul that I may speak boldly as I should. It's striking as we conclude our sermon series. In battle, verses 10 to 20, we end the epistle not in warfare, but in peace. Look how Paul ends in verse 23, peace or shalom. It's the same peace we started the letter with. Peace to the brothers and sisters. Verse 24, grace, the never-ending grace to all who love the Lord Jesus with an undying love. For though this sounds frightening to us, we are enveloped in the gospel, in Christ, in the security of his love and grace and peace. And it's ironic that as we go into battle for the gospel, we stand in the peace of and grace of God's and that grace in verse 24 means that no matter how many times we have fallen before satan like pilgrim in pilgrim's progress we get up and journey on it doesn't matter how many times we have fallen and sinned and been captured because the blood of Jesus forgives us all our sin whatever is on your conscience it's washed away in the victorious death, in the wonderful grace, in the never ending love of the Jesus who cares for you. And the defeat then of Satan is that, that we will not be won back because the grace of Jesus is sufficient to cover us, no matter who we are or what we have done, through the saving death and mighty resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we pray today that we might be a people secure in Christ. We praise you that on the cross he took our sin and guilts and defeated Satan forever. Help us to stand firm in Christ by the power of your Spirit. Give us courage in the battle. Give us confidence in Christ. Protect us individually and corporately too, that we might be those who hold fast to the gospel of grace as a word-centered, spirit-filled church. Because we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.